Hear now the word of Almighty God. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they were, had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. And here, may we not only hear him, but see him lifted high. And may we hear, learn from him, our great prophet, so that he might rule over our hearts as king. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we started looking at this passage in the context of the genealogy that Luke gives just previously. We saw how that parallels Genesis. This is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, which is then preceded by uh, uh, Adam and Eve's temptation there in the garden. We, we say Adam's temptation. We read Genesis. It looks like it's Eve's temptation. Uh, But the New Testament makes clear that Adam was standing around. (laughs) What a lousy husband. Standing there as his wife was tempted. And then after she had fallen uh, into this temptation, he falls right with her and just goes along with it, not saying a word the whole time. Um, But we find this parallel with Christ. There in the garden, Adam and Eve are surrounded by all these trees which God created beautiful, good to the eye, and good for food. 
The exact things that Eve sees about the one tree they're not supposed to eat are the things that God has told us are true of all the other trees as well in Genesis chapter 2. So they're surrounded in this safe place with no danger, no hardship, no dangerous beasts, and all the food they can eat. And Adam and Eve fall. And in contrast, Luke presents us with Christ in the wilderness, harsh, dangerous, uh, no comfort, no protection. Wild beasts, says Mark, surrounded him. The, The devil is there the whole time with him, tempting him with no food for 40 days as his body uh, starts eating itself. The body starts eating its own fat, its own muscle. You become physically weaker. Eventually, although there's a short period of time when fasting can give you a a heightened sense of, of brain usage, But after 40 days, what's happening is the opposite of that. You're slurring your speech. Your brain's not working as well. In other words, Christ is the opposite of Adam in the garden. He has everything against him fighting the devil. And we come to the end of our text. And when the devil ran out of things to say, he left. Mark uses the language, he fled. Christ, our sure and steady anchor here in the garden, uh, in the the desert, not the garden, tempted and successful. And of course, in the New Testament, we have Paul reflecting on him as the second Adam. And if we want to understand what that means, we just look at Romans 5. And there we have spelled out in front of us, we are all under an Adam. We are either under an Adam. Adam, the first Adam, and with him sharing his death and condemnation. Or we are in Christ, and with him many share in life. For where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. How can we know that grace will abound much more? Look at Christ at his weakest, and he wins. You can do the same thing when Christ is in the garden. Three years later, Christ at his weakest. And he stays true to the Father. So as we look at this amazing event in Christ's life, we're pointed to the sufficiency of our Savior. In In our weakness, he is proved strong, isn't he? Because the weakness of God is greater than the strength of man or Satan. It's a glorious image of our Savior. Here, what Satan is trying to do is drive a wedge between the Father and the Son. Each of these temptations is trying to drive a wedge Remember what the last thing we saw of the father was in Luke. Just jump over that genealogy and the father speaks and says, this you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. The next thing said in Luke, 
is a challenge to that statement. That's what Satan's doing. Are you his son? Is he really pleased? He's driving a wedge, or trying to, between God the Father and God the Son. Dear beloved, we, every time we are tempted, are being, in the end of the day, if you boil it all down, we are being tempted by Satan to allow him to drive a wedge between God the Father and us. Between God the Son and us. That's what Satan desires to do. Attack the relationship by driving a wedge. And so even as we gaze upon Christ as this unique redeemer for sinners who is being tempted in a way that we have not experienced and an intensity that, thank God, we don't need to experience as he, as the unique savior is being tempted, we're also being shown an example of our temptations and how we ought to imitate Christ. We need to keep both of those things in our minds. Christ as unique, our Savior, and he doesn't fail. And Christ teaching us as prophet here through word and deed, the will of God for you when you also are tempted. So let's think about the temptations some here. Such a rich section. Matthew especially emphasizes Christ as the true Israel. And so if you want to think about that, go and read Matthew and look at the texts that Christ quotes and their original context and look how Israel was failing. And so Moses said these things. That's a good study. I I think I might have preached that seven years ago in Matthew. But today, I, I am not going to especially focus on which texts Christ picks as much as what Satan is trying to do. And so the first temptation, what Satan is challenging is, is the Father really pleased? If the Father is really pleased with you as his son, where is his provision? Doesn't lack of provision equal displeasure? Satan comes to Christ 40 days of starving. And he says to him, here's a rock, turn it into bread. But what he's really doing was he says, if you are the son of God, he's saying, why do I even need to suggest this? If you are the son of God, where is your bread? Is this the best your father has for you? This stone. And is the father's provision nothing but making you take care of yourself? There's so much tied into Satan's challenge here. Now, could Christ have turned the stone into bread? You realize the first miracle Jesus does, which could have happened any time, anything from three to five days after this event or a month later, we don't know, but it's in John's gospel. It's the turning of water into wine. 
Why was that appropriate? And why doesn't Christ do this with the stone? Do you see the distinction? What makes the two events different? If Christ turns this stone into bread, he's doing something purely for himself. And he's doing something purely for himself, which declares, I'm not going to rely right now on the Father. That's what Satan's putting before him. Will you rely on the Father? What's Christ doing with the water to wine? It's not for himself. It's upholding the fifth commandment. Sometimes we read the water to wine story. It's the only one where someone sick isn't healed, dead isn't raised, broken isn't helped, right? It's just so people can have a party. And that feels so flippant compared to all of the other miracles. And yet what is Christ doing there? He's honoring his mother in the Lord. It's not a selfish action. But here, Christ would be doing something purely for himself. And Satan is challenging him. Do it for yourself because the father isn't really pleased with you. It's a parallel to what Satan says to Eve in the garden. Has God indeed said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Catch what he's doing there. Satan's saying to Eve, has God not provided for you? God has put you here in the garden and he's not providing. He doesn't want you to have these good gifts. Maybe he's not pleased with you. It's the same type of argument where Adam and Eve fall for that. Christ does not. Christ, rather than saying why he should or shouldn't make bread, cuts to the real challenge. Is the Father pleased? Is he providing? Christ does what? He says, I will trust the Father. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Christ is saying, even if I have to die, I will trust the Father. Even if I must die, it's better to live believing the promises of God than live gluttonously and distrust the promises of God. Will I take the Father at his word? What has the Father just said? With you I am well pleased. In the wilderness for 40 days without food, Christ clings to that promise, that declaration of the Father. So much more we could say about the the rock into bread, but isn't this so similar to how we're often tempted As well, we uh, are so often tempted uh, with the feeling of need and urgency, and that need and urgency springs from a doubt that the Father really loves us or that He will really provide. And so we might have things go through our heads like, if God really cared for me, fill in the blank. And because he hasn't done that thing, he must not really care. Or 
Or he does care, but he doesn't care what I do. And so I can go ahead and do this thing because I feel like I really need it. And he doesn't care. We, we make excuses for ourselves to ignore the promises and the word of God over and over because I need this. And if God cares, he'll be fine with me doing this. We, we like our Savior, need to cling to God's promises. One of the best examples of this, I think, are the words that Job says to his friends when he's being tempted. But, you know, I, I think in that moment, his temptation from his friends is a temptation from Satan. And I think more often we need to talk to Satan in the midst of temptation. And it's not a bad thing to use Job's own words. Hear how Job responds when it seems like God is not providing what he needs. Job declares when it feels like God does not care for Job. What does Job say? Hold your peace with me. Shut up, Satan. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. He also shall be my salvation. When Satan's driving that wedge between you and the Father, saying, does he really care? And is he really providing? We should be like Job, imitating Christ. Be quiet, Satan. I will not live by bread alone. Though he slay me, I will trust in him. The second type of temptation Satan brings, in essence, is arguing, doesn't the end justify the means? Have you ever been tempted like that? Doesn't the end justify the means? Look at what Satan is saying to Christ. He, he says, showing him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Can you imagine that? I was trying to imagine that this week. If I'm reading it right, is that saying that in a vision, as it were, all of the kingdoms that have ever existed or ever will exist are displayed as if on a panorama of the earth all at once? And Satan says, all this authority... I will give to you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. I can make it happen, Jesus. But, but see how that's an a, a end justifying the means to get there. Satan is presuming that the end... The goal is that Christ 
reign over all the nations of the earth. Is that right? Is that the goal? Sounds somewhat biblical, doesn't it? Christ reigning. But is that the goal for which God created the earth and all who are in it? Satan says so. He says to Christ here in essence, all that time back when when you were number two and I was just number three, and I tried to become number two and kick you off your throne, and I lost. But did you really understand how painful this would be, Christ? Did you really understand how much suffering all this would take? You've been hungry for 40 days now. Do you finally understand? Isn't 40 days enough? Do you really want to go on with this? Jesus, we don't have to have all this conflict between us. We, we don't have to keep this going all the way to the cross. You, you know, I've only just begun, Jesus. We can stop right now. Do you really want to bruise your heel? Jesus, all you got to do is not crush my head. And we can come to some good terms that we can both like. I get what I wanted. And you still get all the nations of the world as yours. And isn't that the goal? But of course, there's the problem. What is the goal? Now, uh, before we talk about that, I think we often can get very sidetracked. Does Satan really have everything he claims he has there? You know, you read one good scholar and they'll have five pages showing you how in Scripture Satan really does derivatively through the Father's uh, allowance for a period of time have this power. And then you'll read another equally good commentary and they'll spend five pages talking about how Satan never had this power. And you know, Jesus doesn't get into it. Did you notice that? Satan doesn't even get into the conversation. Yesterday we were reading Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a family, and we came across a line, and I thought, oh, I got I to gotta put that in the sermon, because I think Lewis got this verse. At one place in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the dwarf who works for the, queen, the, the witch comes and he announces her as the Queen of Narnia and Empress of the Lone Islands. And Mr. Beaver gets all upset starts grumbling about stolen titles. And and do you remember what Aslan says in that? He says, Peace, beaver. All names will soon be restored to their proper owners. In the meantime, we will not dispute noises. That's what we see here in the wilderness. Because, dear friends, whatever Satan did or didn't have when he claimed it in the wilderness... He certainly doesn't have it today over your life. Because when Christ walked out of that empty tomb, he declared, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
I am the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And I hold the keys of death and hell. He's not saying, I have all authority because we reached an agreement. And Satan gave it to me. Satan had nothing to do with the proper name being put to the proper owner when Christ rose from the grave. Here, Christ sees it as irrelevant. It's a sidetrack. What's the real problem? Satan is telling us the goal is one thing when it's really something else. And that's all that Christ responds to. He doesn't respond to, I will have authority one day. He doesn't respond to, you have authority now, Satan. He says one thing. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see what Satan was doing? He was saying the goal, the end of all things was Christ ruling. And you can use whatever means to get there, Jesus. Let me have what I wanted in glory. I will become God, and you still get to be number two. But the end is not Christ ruling and reigning. The end, the purpose for which God created the world was his own glory, that we might be worshipers of him. This is why he sent Jesus, not first and foremost so that Jesus might have a kingdom. Jesus says, the Father has sent me because he desires worshipers. To seek worshipers. The end is worship, not a kingdom. The kingdom is the means Christ uses to bring about the end of God being worshipped. Satan flipped it around. You and I aren't saved to be a part of a glorious kingdom. We're saved as a glorious kingdom so that we might worship. But Satan does this to you and I over and over again, just as he tried it on Christ. He tries to flip things around on their heads. He tries to make it so that we think the end is our happiness. Our glory. Our comfort. When the end is the worship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we make excuses. But Christ cuts right to it. And we would do well to do this whenever we are struggling with temptation, when we find ourselves making excuses why it's okay to sin. Ask ourselves, is this not an issue of worship? And what is being worshipped? Who is being worshipped? If I give in to this temptation. It's as simple as that. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve.
like Christ, we ought to say, get behind me, Satan. Not because we have the authority he claims, but because we would be worshipers of God. And then the third temptation, Satan comes and really brings it all to a head and challenges Christ, shouldn't God prove himself to you? Shouldn't God prove himself to you? Oh, we know this one so well, don't we? If God really, it's like the first one, isn't it? If God really loves you, he should prove it. Since you are the Son of God, if the Father is pleased, prove it. Satan takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple and challenges him to jump and then quote scripture, the angels will catch you. And one of the things that's going on here very clearly is Satan wanting God to prove himself publicly. There was always a witness when someone fell off the temple pinnacle. You know that happened? People would fall off the temple pinnacle. They were actually taken up there and pushed. Typically as an example, it was a very public execution. Everyone saw it. You could see it if you weren't even inside the temple. As far as I know, no one ever survived. Satan is saying, put God to this test. Make him prove it. Who in Israel would doubt who you claim to be? Who in Israel would doubt that God is for you, pleased with you, and sending you to be the Messiah if you do what no one else has ever done, fall from this height with all these witnesses and get up and walk away? Make God prove his love of you to everyone else and to you. Satan does this every time he tells your heart that promises aren't good enough. Have you ever been in one of those relationships where every moment the person is challenging you? Don't you love me? What are you going to do to prove that you love me? Now, there are relationships, maybe marriages, where the husband needs to do a little more, to, or a lot more, to prove his love. There are also marriages where one of the spouses, I won't tie this to gender, one of the spouses, could be the husband, could be the wife, is always demanding proof, even though the other person's always giving proof. And it's miserable, isn't it? Is that what we ought to desire in our relationship with God? God, constantly prove yourself to me. Isn't it true that the healthier relationships believe promises? Take the promise at its word. 
seeks to show love while trusting the other's promise. Satan doesn't want the Father's promises believed. He wants them proved. Christ recounts in one place, Luke 16, a parable, a story where in heaven Abraham is approached by a man who is in Sheol. And Abraham declares there that if one will not believe based on the word of God, that one will not believe even if one were to rise from the dead. Christ, Christ gets at it here. Satan is challenging to test God, but really what's happening is Satan is redefining faith. What is faith? Satan is trying to make faith testing God's word. When scripture clearly declares in Hebrews that faith is the evidence of things not seen, And that's what Christ is getting at here as well. He says, you shall not tempt, or that could be translated test, the Lord your God. To test God's promises is the opposite of biblical faith. There's only only one exception to that. If God commands you to ask a test, it's faithless to reject God's command. Think of Ahaz. He pulls this one. God says to him, because, in essence, because you don't have faith, because your faith is weak, ask of me a sign. I'm going to nurture your faith. And Ahaz says, oh, I wouldn't dare test the Lord our God. And really, it's him not wanting to have faith increased. He wants his excuse for doubting God. That's the only exception. Everywhere else in Scripture, faith which tests God is not the ideal thing. It's a sign of weak faith. We we want fleeces. We want proof and evidence. We don't want to take God at his word. What has God done in his word? He's given us the sign by promise and by action. By, by promise, we hear God say, I so love the world that I gave my only begotten son, that whoever believes in me shall not perish. What do we do in response to that? Give us a sign. You just fed 5,000 people with no, Nothing. Give us a sign. And what does Jesus say? You won't receive a sign except the sign of Jonah. He's talking about his own death and resurrection. He's going to enter the grave and come back from it after three days. We have the sign from God. We have the promise from God. And yet Satan challenges us 
to not have faith, but to test God. Well, dear friends, our Savior responds every moment with the right words. Let us look to him. If we, if we are to flee temptation and follow him when we too are in the wilderness tempted, we must look to him whom, remember Revelation 19 said, is the word of God. We must look to him and cry out to him in the midst of our temptation, to him, the one who is faithful and true, the one who sent Satan running, the one who crushed Satan's head on the tree. He has sent his spirit into your heart, if you are a believer, to testify to him that we might trust in him and not test him. May God give us grace to do so. Let's pray.